Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Hi, this is Bob Brooks with Long in the Tooth Podcast once again, here with our special guest, Larry Chatterley, who's retired from CTC Associates. And Larry, we're pleased to have you with us today. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate being here. Well, our topic now is preparing for the sale. And of course, uh, one of the questions uh, is, uh, let's just talk about uh, letting the staff know. When, uh, when a practice owner is thinking about selling a practice, what should be the, the uh, policy or the procedure that would be advisable for letting the staff know and bringing them in on the plans that the practice owner has? Well, we found that the most success is right after a person, a seller, signs a listing agreement and has made a plan of action relative to the type of transition he's doing to meet with the staff. <clears throat> and, and we found that this is difficult for some docs, but we found the, uh, the most success in the transition was done where the staff was brought in much earlier on the process. It, what it does, it relates a, a, a higher degree of confidence in the staff and the trust level. Um, when we found it was told, when the staff was not informed until later in the process, there was a, quite a bit of pushback sometimes, and even to the point where we've had things collapse because staff were not informed and we had some issues rise because of not them being in on the process. But essentially, we tell the seller to say, hey, you know, just meet with the staff, said, you know what, I value your, your, what you've done for this practice over the years. I really appreciate the relationship we've developed, but it's come to a point where I need to bring someone else in to, so I can back off or back out, whichever the case may be, somewhat. And, and I'd like to um, have you in on the process so that we can find the person that you feel comfortable with and uh, that would help for a successful transition. And... A lot of times, the staff, really what they have is three or four questions. What they want to know is, do I have a job? Is my pay going to be about the same? How's my schedule? And can I live with this person that's coming in? Well, typically that we found is the staff, you know, they all want a job. A buyer doesn't want to get rid of them. That's part of the goodwill he's paying for. Uh, second, um, he definitely doesn't want to lower the wages. He either keeps them the same or hopefully eventually get up, go up if the, as the production goes up, gets more productive. Um, number three, we usually tell buyers not to change much in the schedule as a general rule, <clears throat> at least not on the onset, until they develop that rapport and trust. And four, the values, uh, we, it's important that the buyer build that trust and relationship and meet with them on a regular basis. 
just like the seller has done. And if the seller has meetings with the staff on a regular, that, that just carries over with the buyer doing the same thing. So when, when those things are addressed on the onset, Bob, we find that there's a higher degree of success. The buyers, in fact, the most successful transitions we've ever done are where the staff was brought in much earlier in the process. But what seems to drive the fact that for some people don't want to tell the staff until the very end is it's fear-driven, fear that something may happen, they may leave or whatever. Well, we found if the staff was told about a transition and they left the, the next day, they already had their foot out the door to begin with. They were already looking for another job. It wasn't because of the announcement of the transition. It's pretty rare. So uh, I try to tell the sellers that's typically not what we see when we when they're informed about the process of a transition. It does happen once in a while, but and if it does happen, at least we got time to figure out how to get someone else. But if you're a day within closing and tell the staff for a week and someone leaves, that's pretty tough to explain that what happened there to a buyer. In fact, some buyers won't even proceed with the closing when that does happen. So it's that's why we would rather have it done sooner. Assuming that does happen, we can address it and get someone else in. Good. Well, uh, you spoke about this next uh, topic, just this uh, next question we're going to look at just a little bit in a previous session that had to do with location of practices. But... Uh, how long, in general, would it take to find a purchaser and close a transaction? Well, if you had, let's just, there's, there's two parts to this. If you had a buyer today and the seller and the buyer agreed to all the practice and terms and conditions, the closing could take 30 to 90 days as a general rule. So that being said, how long does it take to find the buyer? Uh, that could depend many mainly on some key factors. One, where the practice is located, it's location-driven. Uh, number two, uh, the dynamics of that practice. Is there sufficient revenue uh, to keep the buyer financially solvent? Um, three, how the practice looks and the facility. And um, I guess the, those are the main three things, location, we talked that in another session. If the, you're in a rural area, that could take two to three years. If you're in an area where there's a lot of buyers wanting to live, uh, then you could probably find a buyer within less than 90 days. So um, in larger towns, it's usually six months, maybe max a year. In a rural area, it's probably one to three years to find a buyer. Do you find that uh, what, well, let me ask you, uh, what relationship does the uh, procedure mix of the buyer and seller have towards selling a practice? For example, if there's a seller that doesn't do a lot of specialty procedures, but the buyer does, or vice versa, perhaps the, the seller does a lot of specialty procedures and the buyer generally don't. Oh, that's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. Clinical compatibility is a big issue. You could be in a great location, have great crash flow, great staff, all the great facility, great equipment, that all looks great. But if you don't have a complementary clinical match, that could be a significant problem. For example, we saw one the other day, the guy did a lot of sleep apnea. And there are not too many buyers out there that have uh, sleep apnea experience. So his skill set was unique enough that we had to tell him, or I should say my daughter had to tell him that he would have to groom someone, frankly, to, to take over that practice. 
it wasn't it wasn't what we call your average GP. So if you have a practice that's outside the norm, meaning you do a lot of endo or a lot of surgery or TMD or ortho, that's going to restrict your buyer uh, pool to, to acquire it. Or you may have to make adjustment on the price because a buyer doesn't want to pay for a cash flow that he can't re that he can't duplicate. So, for example, if you practice, you got a hundred thousand generating ortho. Your average buyer doesn't do ortho, so to the buyer, they don't want to pay for that revenue stream because they can't reproduce it. So, and by the way, case in note, it, we, we're talking about what to, in a previous session we talked about how to prepare your practice. Uh, if you're doing ortho, I would wouldn't start any new cases. I would get that as, get those done as soon as possible because buyers don't even want to pick the cases up. Got it. And of course, we're largely talking about general dentistry practices, and when we're talking about specialty practices, there are all kinds of other factors as far as how long it may take to find a purchaser. For example, the uh, the number of uh, referrers, you know, if there's an oral surgeon that has five referrers versus, you know, 25 referrers and, and uh, you know, are those referral sources going to get along with the, the buyers and so on? So that's kind of a horse of a different color, isn't it? That's true. Yeah, we've had, I had one in the dentist one time, had three major referrers. That's all he had. <clears throat> and if the buyer didn't take, and consequently, every buyer walked away from it. Risk was too high. Because they said, wait, if I lose one, two, or three, I, that's my whole referral pool. Uh, so it just, and, and most especially, believe it or not, probably 80% of the revenue comes from 20% of the referral pool. And uh, so anyway, if the referral pool gets really low and it's doing the bulk of the business, the perception of risk is higher to the average buyer. That may, And mainly the referral pools, are, we're talking about oral maxillofacial surgeons and inodontists. And some, and to some extent, periodontists, they're kind of a mixture. And of course, orthodontists is more kind of a mixture too, probably more consumer driven than it is even referral driven and, and as, as well as pedodontists. Well, now another subject related to preparing for a sale and uh, one that many sellers might ask, ask their CPAs about is what about taxes? Is it possible to minimize or defer the tax liability associated with the sale of the practice? Yes, there is, in light of the fact that Congress seems to keep changing the, the playing field all the time with their tax laws. But <clears throat> um, for the bulk of uh, practice allocation, most of it is uh, to a goodwill, and that is tax as long-term gain. Um, and most of the equipment is probably less than 20% of the whole value uh, because that's taxed what we call a ordinary income in excess of basis, meaning if you've written all the equipment off that the seller has, any allocation to the equipment side of the equation will be ordinary income to the seller. And so typically we see the bulk or the majority of allocation is to goodwill in any practice. So that in itself minimizes it. Um, if you're a C-Corp and you're not an S, uh, that there's some things you can do to minimize your, your tax bite with that, and you're probably best to talk to a practice broker and a CPA, and they'll tell you how to do that one. Uh, also, carrying back uh, part of the note, well, you're taxed on the installment method, which that means is you're taxed as the money comes through the door. Uh, I mean, as the money is paid on your promissory note. Uh, but we're talking about just the goodwill portion of that allocation. 
And so that helps minimize the tax by if you carry back part of them, part of the purchase price in the form of promissory note, whereby you're only taxed as you receive the money. And that kind of rolls into our next question about real estate. And of course, there are 1031 tax deferred exchanges for real estate that don't exist for practices, although there are some use of opportunity zones for goodwill uh, portion of practice sale value. Uh, and I'll just uh, share the canvas here before I ask you to comment on the real estate, Larry. So what we're seeing with buildings and, and with my experience, uh, more experience in real estate, uh, dental realty brokerage than practice brokerage early on in my career in the dental industry, I see situations where a practice owner owns a building so they can either sell it or lease it, right? And then if they lease it, some of them are not currently leasing it from their own practice. So then they have a question about, well, how do I establish the lease? How do I establish the rates and that sort of thing? And then we've already addressed some uh, of the items with uh, associated with selling the building, either complete seller financing or uh, maybe it's financed through SBA, could be 10% down, conventional 15 to 20% down. And you have uh, a variety of options there. So uh, what do you see that practice owners are generally doing uh, when they own their own buildings? A lot of it has to pay on the location. Uh, many sellers, if they're in a rural location, typically uh, want to sell the, the building because um, there's not a lot of candidates probably that are willing to lease that building if the dentist happens to go down the street. <clears throat> so typically we'll see sellers packaging the deal, <clears throat> even to the extent where they actually end up carrying the mortgage. And the reason for that is, is the buyers don't have the, they don't usually have the sufficient money to put down on the building relative to the SBA guidelines or the bank guidelines to buy a building. So many times the seller will carry the note on, on that and they may carry it five or 10 years, usually maybe a 20 year amortization with a 10 year balloon because by that time they can get financed out. If they're in a metro area and there's more, a lot more potential candidates to buy that real estate other than a dentist, then sometimes they don't feel the pressure they necessarily need to sell. So um, <clears throat> they'll typically do a lease and uh, it depends on the area. Some areas the sellers just flat out want to keep the real estate. And in some areas they can do that for a long period of time because the way the demand for uh, commercial real estate. But um, some of the sellers are willing to grant an option after a lease period, five or 10 years. And then that option is based on whatever the fair market rate is. Some of the sellers will call me back and ask a lot about what the rates are, what they should be charging in lease, because the rate they charge could usually is not to market as a general rule. <clears throat> so there's some search engines that uh, most of the practice brokers have access to. It's not publicly accessed. You usually have to be a right licensed real estate or agent. Um, and those search engines will tell us what the fair market rate is for that real estate. And, um, and then that's usually structured into the lease. So some people will, if it's in a market that's questionable, whether they're going to they'll have the ability to find a buyer later on, if the buyer decides not to, um, buy the building, then sometimes we suggest the sellers to give a, some equity kicker. If they've been faithful on their lease for five or 10 years, a certain amount, a small percentage will be applied to the equity of the building. So that, that kind of puts the golden handcuffs on the buyer to feel more compelled to buy the real estate. But those are in cases where 
we're not sure that real estate would be easy to sell if for any reason the buyer decides not to renew the lease. Got it. You know, one of the search engines, uh, you mentioned search engines that we've used successfully has been CoStar. And uh, in Ohio, for example, we've been coming up with capitalization rates on real estate recently in the 9.0, range in metro areas. So if you're figuring backwards and you're trying to determine what the net operating income or what the rent should be for a tenant, those figures are valuable. And also, I believe that the key performance indicators for real estate in a dental general dental practice budget would be in the 5 to 7% range. So that would be a litmus test to see if the, the numbers are coming in right. And that would be for all real estate costs, including uh, any additional costs for real estate taxes, uh, building insurance, repairs and maintenance, common area maintenance charges. Do you think that that 5 to 7% KPI for real estate is reasonable, Larry? Yeah, that's pretty reasonable. Um, and okay. if it gets much higher than that, then we got to ask ourselves, either he's in a very expensive space relative to his production, or uh, we've seen it where the seller actually gets as trying to pay themselves higher than the market rate because that income's taxed differently um, in investment income versus uh, wage income. And so sometimes we, we've had to adjust that rate down. But here again, that affects the cap rate on the valuation valuation of the practice too. So absolutely, it, it, yeah, so it's got to be, depending on what they've done historically and what the current market, it's got to be close to where, where the market rate. And here again, what, whatever the, the historical charges that the seller has been paying himself can affect the valuation of the practice. Yep. Yep. Sure can. Well, uh, that ends our session on preparing for the sale. So Larry, thank you so much for, for being on today and uh, appreciate your wealth of experience that you received uh, uh, largely as your time uh, before you retired with CTC Associates. Could you share with our listeners again which states uh, CTC serves? They serve Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico. Okay, and they're available online. Uh, so any practice owners in those areas can certainly reach out to them. Okay, well, thanks for joining us today. This ends this session. Thank you.